You're listening to Radio Primavera Sound, proudly presented by Cupra. Welcome to Line Noise. Uh, happy 2024. I know it's slightly uh, far into the year already, but we can still say it anyway. Um, hope you have a lovely year. Uh, today, our guest on Line Noise is DJ Paulette, who is a DJ of 30 years standing, Hacienda resident, TV presenter, radio host, and now author of the book Welcome to the Club, The Life and Lessons of a Black Woman DJ. We talked about whitewashing and dance music, Manchester clubbing, uh, lessons learned from three decades of DJing, the Hacienda, Beyonce saving house music, and much, much more over a very entertaining talk. Thanks uh, very much to uh, DJ Paulette for being uh, so open. Um, I hope you enjoy it and do go and read the book. So I was going to say, I, I really enjoyed your book. Welcome to the club, the life and lessons of a black woman DJ. I'm glad you enjoyed it. I did. No, very much so, very much. Um, and, I mean, rather than me summing up what it's all about... Oh, uh, yikes, you're going to ask me to do it. <laughs> if you don't mind. Can I, I sum my own book up in... How many words do you want me to sum, sum it up? Because people, I'm sure, people have told you that I talk a lot and I can never get to the point. And the Shaggy Dog story is is like me. <laughs> That's good. It's good. <laughs> Um, the book. What can I tell you about the book? The book is loosely based around my life and my um, chronological arc. But what I've done in order to tell the story, let's give a little background, is that I am an arts and history student and I have always been frustrated to the point of writing a thesis on it that certain histories get hidden and I wanted to know why and how and that's been a driver and a question throughout my working and studying academic life is like why does this happen and why do certain things get written about and certain things not and why do certain people get the sunshine and other people not so that was the basis and also why is history why do we believe this history to be the truth when there are other histories obviously in the world that we haven't heard yet and if we knew those other histories would it change our perception of this history that has been kind of stuffed down our throats so you know case in point in england we're taught about henry the eighth and it's a good thing believe it or not that he chops all his wives' heads off and puts them in the tower. You know, how is that a good thing? <laughs> you know, like uh, years, years later, I'm questioning the history I was taught as a child because that's not a good thing. And what happened to his wives' families? And why aren't they suing the royals? You know, like all these questions are just like in my head. Why was that never taken any further? Why were we never taught about anything more than this being a good thing and in terms of electronic dance music everybody talks about the second summer of love and ibiza paul oakenfold danny rampling shoom and second summer of love hacienda raves castle morton and like nothing else happened in the entire world other than those two pivotal events. And for sure, those two events were pivotal. But why 
are they suddenly more important? And why have other people's stories been left out? So I wanted to kind of dig a little bit underneath the surface. And this is what the book is for. It's to dig under the surface. It's to scratch the surface of these very, very important and 100% credible stories, but to show that there's a lot more to the evolution of electronic dance music than just these two things. And, you know, I come through the Hacienda, Hacienda incredibly important, but so were a lot of other places. And I wanted to make a play for that and the discussion of that. And rather than it just be me whinging on about, <laughs> you packed the wrong. <laughs> I wanted to talk to a lot of the people that I've been employed by, worked for, um, worked alongside other people, you know, other of my peers, um, other of my female DJ peers. And just to discuss it all, but have them also do the talking. So it's not just a book about me. It's like, how can I write about a book about me without writing a book about me? And that, I suppose that's your line. It's because I like a lot of other people do the talking and I occasionally string it together with an anecdote. And well, this, this is interesting you mentioned the Hacienda because you were resident DJ at Flesh, which was yes. a really, really big night. I was, yeah. I was, I lived in Manchester in the mid nineties and it's to Marvelous. my shame. You I never didn't. went. No, I know. Shame. I, went shame. Shame. I, didn't, I didn't, I didn't go to Flesh. And I, 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 but you I, see now there's the proof. You didn't go. Mm. There were other things happening. It's, I mean, it, it's, it's just really key to keep that in mind. There were other things happening. There were other places to go. There were other scenes that were active at the same time. And that's not saying that it wasn't important because I was part of it. I came from it. You know, the genesis of DJ Paulette came from the Hacienda, Whitwood Street, that like, that's my birthplace in terms of DJing. But, um, you know, there were other places. And why didn't those places get talked about and written about and photographed? And I, I'm just really, I was really interested in it, not necessarily exposing that story, but unearthing that story. But in terms of the Hacienda, I've read, for example, Peter Hook's book about yeah. Hacienda, and the I really enjoyed it. Me ever not in one single place, and that is when I came back to Manchester. That was how I went in. That was that that was my crusade. Is I've been left out of this. <laughs> And I'm going to write myself back in. And <laughs> that's what I've spent the last seven, eight years doing. Well, I suppose it didn't take me that long, really. But I'm still doing it because I'm a pest. <laughs> a nice pest. But if you're going to, um, you know, if you're going to talk about history, and you're going to talk about legends and myths and all, all of those kind of things. It's nice to have a bit of balance. 
and I just wanted to create the balance, you know, the the other counterweight to all the other stories that told, you know, that that did really a hundred percent underpin Peter's story. And Peter's story is as accurate, hundred percent accurate as it is for him, but yeah. not for everybody else. And that's why I also talked to Peter Hook in my book to kind of get his spin on why he wrote his book like that and who he missed out and who he included and why. And it was very revelatory for me, in fact, when I sat down with Peter, because, you know, I, I know him. We are friends, believe it or not. <laughs> we are actually friends. And I have, apart from, apart from me being super fangirl, because Joy Division and New Order are two of my favourite bands, so, you know, I'm definitely not going to be picking fights with him because he's one of my heroes, musical heroes. But it was really enlightening to sit and talk with him and talk about the process of writing a book because, um, you know, what he did say, which was super important and also had an influence on how I've written my own book, is that it's your story. You can't tell, you can't really tell anybody else's story. You have to tell your story for you, for the facts as you remember them, for the facts as you remember them happening to you. And if that means you miss somebody out, it's never entirely malicious. It, well, you know, it maybe it can sometimes be if someone's done you wrong and you just decide to not talk about them, that's different. But in general, it's like, well, they weren't really in my circle or they weren't in my, you know, my attention radar did not get up to that person. It, it didn't reach that person. And, you know, you have to tell your own story. And when he said that, I realized it's like, well, thinking about it, even though I knew him, and even though I was working at the Hacienda, I don't think I ever sat and talked to Peter Hook until 2015 when I said, you've not written me in your book. So fair enough, you know, fair play. I probably, you know, I absolutely was not in his circle of experience, Manchester experience, or in his circle of friends. I was with Tony Wilson, however, but not with Peter Hook. So that's how, you know, it was important having that conversation with Peter because it, it then made me feel like, well, I wasn't actually left out on purpose. He just didn't know I was there. And that is also important for the discussion of how histories get hidden. It's like sometimes people might not just know you're there or you're that important or you're or it means that much to you to be included in that story and um yeah i mean it it was an important it was an important conversation to have and i think it, it really shone a light on the book writing process as what we include, what gets edited out, who gets included, who we don't include, who is part of the story and who isn't. And 
it's just one of those frustrating little details about history is that you know what seems like an innocuous omission on publishing day you know 500,000 copies later it becomes history and it becomes fact and if that fact is missing something then we have a problem so it was it was kind of trying to make people think more about the yes it's your story but we do have a responsibility to be a little bit more accurate in the recounting of the tale so I mean, you mentioned, I think, in the introduction to the book that you pitched a book in 2011. Yeah. Uh, and it was turned down. Yeah. Was that like a sort of similar book to what you ended up writing? Um, some of the ideas are actually in this book. Or not even some of the ideas, some of the titles are in this book. So Shit Shags and Crap Hotels, that's always been there. <laughs> um, and and I think actually Shitshags and Crap Hotels was going to be a book. But when I thought about it more, I thought, oh, you know, people are just gonna think I'm a slag if I write a book like that. So it was better for me to write it as a chapter <laughs> than an entire book. <laughs> and um how to kill a DJ existed as I started that as a blog in 2014 I think for DMC Worldwide and I wrote a few um, columns for Dan Prince and I think we got three or four episodes in and he was like I love the way you write Paulette but it's not for this magazine. You need to be writing it for the Guardian or somebody like that. It's too highbrow for us. We want, you know, this is like a dance music magazine. We want like dance music stories. We don't want you pouring your heart out about your criminal landlady, your alcoholic landlady. <laughs> it's just like, it's nice, but it's just not for us. Um, so that bits of it existed and i've gone back to some of the stuff that was written because it it's also a kind of diary yeah so when i was looking at those years again it was interesting to go back into the blog and see what the hell i was talking about and what was happening in 2014 and 2015 and it was like whoa right now i can actually frame it better because what i didn't know was how to contextualize it in terms of what was happening culturally, where I was geographically, how that changed, how I was perceived as a black woman DJ on the island of Ibiza, rather than it just being a story. There was a weight to it. I could add a certain weight to it. So it, I revisited certain of those ideas in the blog for the book and they are in the chapter, How to Kill a DJ. Uh, and then it was 2021 when Manchester University Press asked you to write. Yeah, we were in lockdown. Do you think the fact that they asked you to write it indicates that attitudes to dance music history are 
slightly changing yes absolutely that but it, it it wasn't so much commissioned because of the dance music history it was more to do with the hidden histories of minorities and uh, you know minorities and non-binary women and non-binary and people of color so it was more on the level of you know because if you look at the statistics for books that are commissioned by black writers black british writers black male writers and then black female writers you will see that the uh, percentages are super super low so it was also on that where they're kind of looking for interesting stories from minority writers and so suddenly my experience from being irrelevant in 2011 which is really interesting because this is at the beginning of this 10-year whitewashing period is now super relevant in 2021 when everyone's gone oh my god george floyd we need to look at our diversity inclusion and equality policies and um we need to start looking at commissioning stuff from a more diverse roster of writers so i was kind of caught up in that and part of that and i'm glad because you know i i was kind of vocal and visible at a really key time also for publishing so there's your story no one's asked that question before <laughs> and i'm sure my publisher will be crying with me telling it it's like don't tell the truth but i'm going to well, I, as I said, I went to Manchester University, so I was very pleased to see it on their on their uh, imprint that was coming out. Yeah, good, good, because the Manchester University actually turned me down for a degree. I went to the poly. <laughs> but you went just as it became university, right? Yes, I did. I yeah. did. I did. So I came away with a university degree. <laughs> I am so childish. <laughs> you can't put that on your podcast. <laughs> So again, in the intro to the book, you you mentioned Beyonce's Renaissance. Yeah, I'm going to quote you: "Saving house music." That's what she said. Whether she's right or whether she's wrong, you know. I mean, that was the big debate when Beyonce's album came out. It's like, is she saving house music or is she just using loads of samples and having to credit the people? But no not necessarily saving it but definitely sh shining a light on lots of different aspects of it so you know there were trans writers on there there were trans producers and djs on there honey dijon got a grammy for alien superstar and cozy which were two of the key tracks highest stream tracks on the on the renaissance album and you saw what she did with the tour it's the biggest grossing tour ever <laughs> of anyone and that includes Taylor Swift so even though Taylor Swift went into the Forbes 30 and Beyonce did not so we have to question why that happened but um yeah I mean there, there were lots of reasons why it was important to mention that 
this is the end this is the environment this is the milieu in which the book has been published because i for me context 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 is everything and you have to set things i think people have to be aware of what is happening outside at the same time that they're reading in this very one-track-minded way they're reading facts figures events or whatever but i'd like people to always be be aware of what i'm writing through see i i love beyonce i love so beyonce. do i she's I amazing love... but um i said in my but in she my... didn't save house music god lord no <laughs> she didn't save it she used it most definitely she used it so i don't think to... she saved it we we weren't in trouble or drowning so why why did you say that in the in the that's what she said that's what she said that's how that's how the album was promoted at the time beyonce saves house music and that's why um you know if you look online um around the time that the renaissance album was released everything on in instagram and twitter and social media was going hard against her for saying the album saves house music and for people saying, you know, for reviewers saying that this album saves house music. So it's not something that's come from my mouth. This is what the conversation, this is what the discourse around that album was at the time. And it's a bit ironic me saying it. I don't believe that she did. But I don't get into discussing that bit. It's not about her, it's about me. <laughs> We talked about chapter five, which is how to kill a DJ. Mm. It starts off this chapter with a friend telling you rather charmingly that you're not famous anymore. Yes. <laughs> which, yeah. felt, you know, quite a bold thing to say, a bold way to start a chapter. Um, how important do you think is it to talk about the peaks and the troughs of a career? I think it's massively important. I read something yesterday which was saying, uh, you know, when you write a book or if you, you know, you, you post anything online, people don't really want to see the bad story. They just want to see the successes. But I think that's wrong. And I think it's dangerous because if people only ever see the good side, whenever anything, uh, you know, anything odd happens or whenever they veer off that path, they're not going to know what to do and they're going to think it's something to do with them why it's gone wrong and what i wanted to say was this is life right and in life no matter how well you plan life will get in the way you will get in the way of yourself sometimes and life will get in the way of you so you can be ill or you can totally mess up, you can spend all your money, you can go bankrupt, you can live in the wrong place. And I happen to have done quite a lot of those things <laughs> just because I'm bloody minded and do what I want. And then I'll get there and go, oh, shit, maybe that wasn't you know, the best thing to do. But I've always believed that even though I've done those things, that there is a value in sharing that information with people. And to share that information in a funny way is a really great learning tool because, you know, I'm not judging anyone. I'm not judging myself either for making the mistake. A mistake is a mistake. 
But the only way we learn anything from being born day one is by making mistakes. It's by standing up and falling over until you can walk. It's by walking step by step and then figuring out that you can run. But then sometimes you'll run and you'll trip over and you'll absolutely scuff your knees. And, you know, things go wrong. Things just naturally veer off course. And then you can pour oil on the fire by taking drugs and drinking or just being an absolute see you next Tuesday. Sometimes it happens, you know, sometimes it happens that you get so lost in your own ego that you don't see that you're being a pain in the ass that nobody wants to work with. And I think it's important for me to write about those things so that people can remember to check. It's important not always to just look outside and say, oh, you know, this didn't happen because that person was against me or that organization didn't want to book me. Sometimes it's equally as valuable to look at what we do ourselves and go, do you know what? That was my mistake. <laughs> I fucked up. Okay, so how do I fix it? And if we never talk about the mistakes, then how's anybody going to know how to fix it or be comfortable with the idea that you can make a mistake but it can be fixed. It's not the end of the world. I am living proof of it not being the end of the world, but I've had to do a lot of recalibration along the way in order for it not to be the end of the world. Because a lot of people who've come up at the same time as me, behind me and also in front of me, have not been able to come back from those mistakes. And I think if they had the right help or advice, they could have done that. So this is why, you know, I've not done all of this and made all of these mistakes for nothing. <laughs> it's nice to share them anyway. It's just like, crack on, read that. <laughs> no, I like I like that bit. I like that bit because I thought it was, it's very much what you say. It's like, you know, yeah, you might make a mistake, but it's not the end. Yeah, you know? it's not the end of the world. It's never the end of the world. You know, if it, if, Making a mistake was the end of the world. There would never be an electric light bulb and there certainly wouldn't be Apple computers. And there would not be, you know, most of the developments that, you know, AI, just look at what happened with that. And they fired the guy, first of all, who was responsible for it. They just like unceremoniously fired him. If those things did not happen, we would not have the results of how those people came back and fixed it and made something that was just incredible and beautiful that we can all share in. But they've all had this experience. And I, I really wanted to drive that point home that Bailey comes for everybody. It really does. It comes from, for absolutely everybody and definitely in the creative um in the in the creative environment it comes in cycles because we are also really prey to trends and fashions and those have like time loops or cycles so you have to you know even 
when you are successful, you have to be aware of the cycles and how to navigate being really, really popular and then falling out of favor and then the cycle coming round again. Look at Madonna. There is a reason why she's the queen of reinvention. Look at Lady Gaga. How many times has she changed her look or vibe or sound? You know, she's done everything from jazz to folk to bluegrass to country to, you know, electronic dance music. She's done everything and there is a reason for that happening. So I wanted to make it clear that this thing comes in cycles. We need to be aware of it and think, oh, it's not just me. This is like the natural course of things. This is the, you know, and this is how I can deal with it. And I need to be aware of it and I can plan for it and definitely start putting money away. <laughs> Well, talking of that, I mean, like, chapter six of the book is about the pandemic. Oh, yeah. Love which, that chapter. <laughs> well, I mean, you had a, a pretty hard time. Yeah, it was it was hardcore that going through the pandemic was just, it was hardcore. And then, you know, there's splitting and there's being able to function and function at a really high level and perform and talk on panels and all of those kind of useful and uplifting entertaining things i was making four radio shows a month um one for worldwide one for reform um one for global residency i had another one for someone can't remember exactly who um, so I was literally turning around a radio show a week and also doing a lot of live streams and panels and talks. And then I was going home and <laughs> losing the plot, basically. And I think it is, again, important to t talk about that journey because, um, you know, we are vulnerable human beings i'm a human being i'm not a machine i'm not a robot and i have you know i've got feelings and i've got failings i've got weaknesses i've got vulnerabilities just like everybody else and it, I, I think it's important to say how i dealt with that and and that i could find the right help to deal with it when it happened so for anybody else who's struggling i wanted anyone who reads that chapter to know that they're not on their own that this happens and you can get help now we've been back in clubs for about two years year yeah. and a half, roughly that i wonder yeah. if you thought that the pandemic had changed clubbing fundamentally mm, in some ways yes um I know at the beginning people were, I mean, I I was and, I, and still am to a degree nervous about super big crowds and that, and I noticed the split, which hadn't really been there before, where the older people who are, you know, more vulnerable and or a bit more nervous about you know, mortality 
than the younger ones because the younger ones couldn't have cared less. They were just straight back in the clubbing, you know, no mask, no anything, hugging, kissing, you know, sharing drinks, everything. But I know like my sisters and my brother, I couldn't get them in a club for months before, you know, before once we'd come out of lockdown. So I was aware, you know, even in uh, looking at, at the crowds in front of the decks that at the beginning when we came out of lockdown the crowd was much younger the older people really took their time to come back into socializing in big groups and i think it made a difference like that it's kind of got a bit more back to the balance of it now which is good but that's not saying we're out of the woods because it's given all of the clubs a massive big financial kicking and all of the DJs also a massive big financial kicking. So some of the DJs aren't entirely back yet. I know that to be a truth. And, uh, you know, I am very, very lucky in that whatever I did through lockdown kind of saved saved my life in a way saved my professional life most certainly because i stayed visible and relevant which is you know that's what every single event every single performer artist had to kind of do throughout the pandemic is to stay visible and stay relevant in a way that whenever we came out of lockdown we were going to go back to work i've got a vaguely stupid question but i want to i want to ask no, i like stupid questions well you you've been djing for more than 30 years now yes so talk about in your book and you say you're still in love you're still in love with djing totally why because music is the longest starting relationship I have had with anything. It is my life. I think I've been into music since before I was actually born because my mum was a singer and, you know, she did not stop performing while she was pregnant. She mum actually, her waters broke while she was on stage with me <laughs> and my twin. This is the family legend anyway, whether it's true or not. You know, my mum tells a good story just as I do. So, <laughs> you know, it's that Capricorn thing. But I've always been in music. Everything, everything I do is down to music, dancing, clubs, and I absolutely love it. I love sharing music with people. I love talking about music with people. I love playing music. I can sit, you know, when I'm listening through to music at home, I can watch day turn tonight. I might not have even eaten anything, but I'll have been crate digging, but digitally looking for music and one thing leads to another and this person leads to that person and oh i didn't know that they were in that band and then you kind of go down a real rabbit hole of oh they played for oh patrick cowley was oh yeah oh right keep keep going and i am that curious i am still that curious and i think that's um i think that is the real reason why i've kept going because it really 
there is so much music that I can never stop being curious about what next and who and where and what it sounds like. You know, I was just mad jealous when the Salt live event happened in December and I couldn't go. You know, that was just like a real, like, stress, like, why can't I go? Why can't, why have they done it there? Why didn't they do it in Manchester? You know, it just, it freaked me out because I've been following that band since they came up through lockdown. You know, this is a lockdown project to start with. And this is me with music. It's not just nostalgia, you know, and, you know, the same with the Hacienda. For me, it's not just the nostalgia of it. It's still coming you know it's still like teeming bubbling over so much so much new music so many new faces voices styles genres looks you know it will never end and it is bottomless it is bottomless it's just like dive in for me it's just like the biggest swimming pool ever and just bring your mates for a good old session so over 30 years DJing, what's the most important thing you've learned about it? Um, you need a big bladder. <laughs> or a long record, a very, very long record. Long records don't always work, though, because some people just won't let you go to the toilet in front of them. So it actually helps to... Um, like measure the amount that you drink the amount of fluid that you take on board how you know it, it's like the big mathema mathematical equation how much fluid in brackets versus how long is your set versus how far is this booth from the nearest toilet versus how many people are in here. And it's just like quadratic equations. It's the maths of going to the toilet. <laughs> no, but really what have I learned about DJing is just like, it is the absolute joy for me to share music with people who are as passionate and enthusiastic and curious about music as I am, that love still, no matter how old or young they are, to just absolutely lose it on a dance floor to a tune. I love that. I still, you know, whatever music I get, house, techno, new soul, you name it, if I play a tune and it makes me drop, I'm just like, oh my god this is the best thing ever you know i will pick up on a tune you know on hits from people like you know as fast as fisher and as fast as the ezra collective and you know i'm listening to all of that gabriel's i'm listening to all of that all these things that are coming through when they were coming through new and it's no one's heard it and then i li love love listening to giles and jams on the radio because they are you know they have completely different musical collections to me so i if i listen to those two i'm listening to music that i would never normally pick up on and that's why i like listening to their shows because it, it you know it's an education for me so i'm still learning 
and I think that's what I I that that's what DJing has brought me is that it's just like a massive big library. Music is just the hugest library and not just on a Spotify level. You know, it, it's you're just always learning about new things, new technology. You know, my decks have changed how many times? Like, uh, I don't play vinyl anymore. I play, I'm a digital DJ. I use USB and I, I, you know, whatever that argument is about DJing is, you know, I am quite happy to move with new technology. I am not a fuddy-duddy that will say vinyl is everything. Vinyl is great. It is. You know, I, I am considering buying a very special um, version of Sylvester's Living Proof on vinyl if I can find the one with three vinyl in it, not two. Um, and I've not actually felt like that about vinyl for a long while. So it's interesting having that. You see, it's a library. It's a thing. It's, it's just like, it just gives you so much. And it's been the longest standing relationship I have ever had with anything. All of my relationships, partners, you know, male, female, whatever, have never lasted. Not even a third of the amount of time that I've been into music. So what do we miss? What's the most misunderstood thing about DJs and DJing? Uh, that it is this glamorous... Um, profession where we do nothing because <laughs> every DJ I know from multi-million dollar or I'd say even maybe billion dollar earning DJs, producers like you know Calvin Harris, David Guetta um, to you know the the youngest I've just got a controller of, uh, I started DJing through um, lockdown. I'm really into my garage and house DJ. They graft. They work really hard. Every single DJ I know works really hard to get their sound and their sort of persona set in a musical kind of, kind of create some kind of musical technical coat that covers them and that they that other people when they look at them can identify that sound with them and every single DJ I know works super hard like some of the hardest working people that I know and we take a kicking because it's 99 no's and one yes and it doesn't matter how high you get up whichever ladder it's all levels you know you'll get to a place where you know people would say to me oh my god you know you got you've got all these awards and surely it must be easier no it fucking isn't I still got a hustle like the next person for, for for work and for fee and for positioning on the you know positioning on the posters and this that and the other it never ends you know it never ever gets you know I'm not at the level where I'm in the private jets with my name written on the side of it. Maybe I'll get there, maybe I won't. It's not necessarily important to me unless there's a strike anyway. 
<laughs> You're still on the same plane. <laughs> but I'd love it, really, secretly. I would love it if that happened. Who wouldn't? <laughs> I'm talking to myself here and answering myself back. But every single DJ, no matter how high or low they are, we work really hard at our craft and we absolutely love it. I don't think anyone who lasts a certain amount of time can do that without absolutely loving what they do. And I just like, like I say, it's the, it's the relationship of my life. I, I want to talk about Manchester, if that's all right. Yeah. Does Manchester have the best clubs in the world? Now, some of them, absolutely, yeah. Of course it does. Hidden, Warehouse Project. Um, yeah, it's got a couple. I mean, it, it depends what you're looking for as well, because we have some really cool smaller clubs, like Band on the Wall is really great. Um, I did a party at New Century, White Hotel was really, you know, there are smaller little like mid-range clubs that are super, super cool and have a lot of, um, you know, get a lot of kudos from people all over the world. So I think Manchester does have some of the coolest clubs in the world. And, you know, if you look at like the Homo block party, which people are starting to copy that now so you know they they did their own version or, or not their own version of homo block but something similar this year at the drum sheds in london i can't remember the name of the event but you kind of start seeing pop-up copies of manchester events in places and you know I think it's important to say we got there first. <laughs> yeah, I do. I, and not just because I'm from Manchester, you know. Um, there are some very clever and very switched on and incredibly music and creative loving people here in Manchester that put on some of the best events in the world and incidentally those people then at certain times of the year go out into Glastonbury go out into you know various events sonar or wherever it is Croatia worldwide and take what they do in Manchester out into the world so yes we do I was just remembering the few times I went to Homo Electric back in the 90s and that yeah. was a great party. Yeah, yeah and it still is. Wow. It still is all these years later. I play for them, so. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah, I just, I did their new year, uh, which was at New Century, but they've, they've got another party, I think, in February, coming up in February. Still going, Homo Electric. Still absolutely smashing it. See, I remember reading once that people in Manchester spend the most money on music per head of anywhere in Britain. That would not surprise me. Yeah. I still spend a fortune. And, you know, whether it's... It's quite funny because I still get... I get sent a lot of music, but I hardly play anything that I'm sent. 
most of the music that I play, I have bought. <laughs> so that says a lot. <laughs> I think you're more likely to play it when you buy it. And you're invested, yeah, yeah. You're kind of invested in it because it's like I I bought that tune and I like that tune and you know as soon as you play it that it does that thing that makes you want to play it to lots of people. Whereas if you just kind of download all the stuff you send, you're just playing sometimes a really average set of lots of stuff that you send that doesn't really stick together. So, um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't surprise me because we've still got loads of record shops here, whereas lots of other countries and places haven't got very many record shops. And vinyl is still moving here massively. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me to know. I mean, I know how much my brother-in-law spends on music. He's not even a DJ. He's got the most incredible collection of records, Martin. Oh my God, like I know every Christmas and every birthday, all I need to do is send him a Juno voucher. Because that's what he wants. He buys music, you know, that like, and he buys incredible music. And he's got an incredible history anyway. He used to be a DJ back in the day, but he's not anymore. But yeah, he buys loads of music my sister all of my sisters all of my sisters are still buying music it, it does not surprise me that manchester buys lots of the music because we love it you can have a conversation with anyone in manchester about music i had some people doing some work on the, in the house the other day and i just struck up a conversation with one of the work guys and he was telling me that he buys every single release. He's got practically every single release that the Beatles have put out, including all the, you know, international stuff. And I thought, wow, because you just don't even know when you're passing somebody in the street what their musical um, influences are or what, what their record collections are, but you can guarantee it won't take you long have that conversation with someone <laughs> we are all really like mad about music which is why i love coming back here because the music is really important in this city so i wanted to ask about paris as well because you lived in paris for yes. years um yeah. and so i i also lived in paris yes how did you find it well tell the I, truth <laughs> love paris yeah. I do not love Paris's nightlife. Honestly, um, the nightlife that turned you off. When you were, when were you there? Um, ninety-seven to ninety-eight. And okay. Nine to two thousand. Oh, you know, but you were there at actually a really key time. Ninety-seven, ninety-eight. Were you were you not going to Queen or Les Bandouches or any well, one of those places or Paul, Paul Rex or you know they were all. But I, t I tell you what I'm it was. It then. No, no. But the, what I found was I was a bit skint because I, yeah. I was basically working as in in a school and I was earning. Okay, fuck all. Exactly. <laughs> because they don't pay a lot there, I can tell you. But they take it all off you in tax. <laughs> and that's the truth. Nearly fifty percent bastards. <laughs> Good health service, bro. Good health service. <laughs> 
Uh, well, you know, people ask me where my money went, and I can say, well, n nearly 50% of it went in tax, and the rest of it went on expensive handbags and shit men. <laughs> <laughs> or shit partners, rather. That's the truth of it. But, yeah. <laughs> but the, the thing I found about Paris was there was really good music, right? Yeah. But the, the, I thought it just lacked a bit of that Manchester spirit, you know? In Manchester well, when I got there, they got that Manchester spirit. They yeah. got it. <laughs> and they loved it for years. <laughs> Maybe you're right. Maybe that's what happened. Because, go on. No, I was going to say, you, you got really big in, in Paris. Yes, I did. Yeah. I did. It was, uh, and... and it's never been documented and that's why i make a little comment about it in the book because for whatever happened for me in those years in paris try as i might to get coverage for it in the press the english press couldn't care less about what happens in france and you know, they don't speak French, they don't write French, they don't go to French clubs. You know, there, there is a real, not a snobbery, but, it, and I don't even think it's political, but it's just like a dead zone on certain territories in Europe. And England and France are just like, you can't get the two to cover what each other is doing. Although I think France is more likely to cover what's happening in England, but England is absolutely could not care less about what's happening in France. And that's what I found happened. So when I moved to France, as big as I got, I could not get any coverage in any UK magazines. It's like, yeah, but you know, and I put out six albums when I was in France. I was the, like the compilation queen. I was, that was um, fashion TV. I put out a compilation for a club that I was working with called Mix Club. It was the first one ever. All sorts of compilations. And the, the last one I did was in 2010 for Wagram. Biggest selling comp compilation that year. But it was only released in France. And nobody in any, um, you know, nobody in any magazines wanted to write about it. And it's like, but I'm playing this party with David Guetta. Oh, David Guetta. Like it was the worst thing, you know, like I'd just committed the worst crime of killing all the babies. You know, it's like I'm working for the number one DJ in the world. I'm playing on the same stage as the number one DJ in the world. And also, you know, there were parties where I'd play at the same time, not us all on the stage at the same time, but David would headline, Martin Solvig would play, Bob Sinclair would play, Joachim Gowrode would play, and I would be in the middle of the four, co like the four cornerstones of French house and me. And I, nobody knew yeah and I kind of went years with that happening for me and I was playing on all these big stages big posters Nice Montpellier Bordeaux you name it and all year round and every year December the 1st 
Journée Internationale du Sida. It's International AIDS Day. I would play with Bob Sinclair in Monaco for the Prince, Princess Grace party, her fundraiser, every year. So that was the level. <laughs> we weren't playing. I wasn't playing. It's just like that was who I was. And those were the people I worked for. And I nearly got a ride on a private jet that time, but then Bob didn't let me share his plane. <laughs> Don't write that. But it was just nobody knows about what happened for me in those years in France. And even though I tried to tell people, it was like always kind of damped down. Like, but I think if people did it now, you know, or if it was a different person that was working with David Getter, maybe they'd been like, oh my God, you know, this person's working with David Getter. But because it was me, it was like, you know, a big tot. <laughs> God, what do I have to do to get a gig around here? I'm working with the number one DJ in the world and nobody thinks it's a good thing. Oh, well. So you you asked me what I thought of France, honestly. Yes. What did you think of France, honestly? I absolutely love France. I love it as a country. I love it, like, many, for many, many reasons, food and wine included, um, language included, because just like English, it changes around the country so I learned to pick up the accents of the south the north the east the west of France and when I whenever I was traveling around France people would say I sounded like a Parisian because obviously I'm living in Paris and starting to learn French and the French that I picked up was Parisian French and a bit snotty apparently I didn't know. I was just speaking for speaking the French that I heard, you know. Um, and I love, I mean, I love Paris. I will always love Paris. It is one of the most beautiful cities in the world, without question, the way it's planned out, the buildings, the architecture, the just the general look of it. And it's also really clean. <laughs> It is really clean, apart from not when you go into the metro. The metro is filthy. But if you have white gloves and you touch, I mean, it's the same in London, and you touch the guardrail, the, the handrail, it will be black. The the, the metro is, is, is filthy. But the city is beautiful. The museum's incredible galleries incredible the Seine I mean it is just one of the most romantic walks you can do but my big but was that I would always no matter how hard I tried and how much French how much I learned to speak French and speak French quite you know, decent enough to hold my own in a meeting with people, I would never be French. And people would do that really super rude thing of talking around me about me. 
and yeah. things I didn't understand. And then I'd hear it and I'd, be, and I'd reply in French and then, then they'd be very embarrassed. Or I just wouldn't understand and they'd do it anyway, which I think is just the lowest of the low in terms of communications. And I got to the point in Paris where it was getting towards my 10th year and um, I had a decision to make whether I was going to be naturalized or not. Mm. And I'd started doing the investigations for it and I would have had to surrender my passport. And I thought, that's not going to happen mm. because I am not and I will never be. And I love it. Don't get me wrong. And, and this is not me being xenophobic or racist or anything like that. I am never going to be French. I wasn't born in France. I don't have a French atom in my body and I can learn to speak French, but I have not been brought up in the culture and steeped in the culture enough to pass ever as French. I will always be English. Everything I know, everything about me is, first of all, I am a mank and I am proud of that. I am a northerner, working class, made good, you know, put it how you will, but I will always be a mank and I will always be English. And I can't change that. I cannot physically change that. That's who I am. And do you know what, actually? I wouldn't want to change it. I don't want to change it. That's who I am. And that holding on to those roots. And I remember my dad saying this to me when I graduated, don't forget where your roots are. I think this is what he meant. You know, as far as you can go, the real anchor for me has always been to remember where I came from and not in a working class chip on my shoulder way, but I find it's a strength to know that this, this place, this like hub of sport and music and politics and science and whatever else, you know, where the police force started, where the suffragette movement started, you know, where the atom was split, where the computer was created. You know, this place, Manchester, is fucking brilliant. And as nice as Paris is to look at, I would not change it. And I have, you know, I can't say enough that when I came back in 2015, it's the best business decision I ever made. Yeah. Because I am amongst people who are like me who are ready to create at an instant who are ready to help advise put one person onto another person um and just listen to what you've got to say and i think being a monk is really special and that we're not we're not mean we're just not really mean people we're just really open 
and welcoming and decent. And we don't do that rude thing really about talking about people when they're in the room, <laughs> thinking they don't understand. <laughs> talking about French dance music, um, I was listening to your excellent collaboration, Shiro's. Yes, with um, Chris Massey. Air of, uh, of um, a well-known French dance song. Um, which one for you? Which well-known French dance song do you feel Did like it? Teachers? No. Oh yeah. Well, yes. So yeah, Daft Punk but, teachers. But yeah. Just there. Like I'm not. Not. not yeah. So. No. No. That that was one of the um, one of the bases for making this track and making this argument. Um, we didn't want to make a big thing about it, but you picked it out because. Daft Punk's teachers had 51 mentions of all the people that had influenced them through their career and there, there wasn't one woman in it. And then a few years later, Soul Wax remade it and they had 40 odd mentions and I think they, they managed to mention one or two women out of the 40. And I was like, how can that happen? But then also when I, when we made the track, it was 2017, I think, when we started it. And um, I was just aware for myself and for a lot of my friends that we weren't getting any, we weren't getting the work that we really wanted to get. And we weren't getting the slots that we wanted to get. And we weren't getting the pay that we wanted to get. And I thought, you know, I'm going to make a track because <laughs> I thought it was a good idea. I'm going to make a track that says we're here and these are the people, you know, these are my teachers and I can actually make that track with 50, 60, 100 women on it and no men, you know, and, and that's what we kind of set out to do is like, can we do this? And it, in the beginning, I think it was 10 minutes long and we had to cut it to six and a half, which, you know, we lost a lot of names in that. And then it became evident, again, this hidden history is who gets in and who doesn't. And it is to my infinite annoyance that I mentioned myself and Kath McDermott first before we get into the chorus and everyone always cuts that bit off <laughs> so you never ever hear, hear my name or cast in that track ever you know even when it's been played on the radio they always talk over that bit and then they come in <laughs> it's like i don't mention myself in the in the track um so yeah we it, it and i wrote it and it had various edits. I think it went through 15 edits and it rhymes. It is actually a proper song. It's not just a name drop fest. And we shopped it and no female labels would take it and no women would remix it. And it was just the maddest thing that I'd made this track to um, talk about women that I couldn't get any female-led labels to sign. 
and I couldn't I could hardly get any female DJs to play. And, <laughs> and it took um Black Riot, which was the sister label to Midnight Riot, owned by Jaegerossa and Yamhu, to sign it and put it out. And the Hi-Fi Sean mastered it and did one remix. And then we had two other remixes by two other guys who I can't remember who they were, which is really bad of me. But on this like real political moment for me where I'm making a statement and we released it on the centenary of the suffragette movement. So a year later, so 2018, we released it and we couldn't get any women on it until Namone and the Blessed Madonna played it on Six Music. Bonkers. It's a great track. It's a great Thank track. you. With lots of energy. Yeah, I felt it was more like uh, a sort of Ian Jory, um, sort of Ian Jory-esque vocal, you know. It, it had that hit me with your rhythm stick yeah, vibe to yeah, it. Yeah. I realised now, we, we talked a little bit um, about Flesh, but we didn't quite explain what it was. I mean... Oh, it's just a great monthly club night. Last Wednesday of every month at the Hacienda. Big gay nightclub experience for Dykes, Queers and their friends. We had a very um, positive discrimination policy on the door. So if you weren't gay and you didn't have any gay friends and you weren't coming in with any gay friends, you were not getting in. Um it was brash, it was bright, it was decadent, and it was really young. Not really young in that it was just young people that were there. The crowd was mixed, but the crowd was also mixed in that it brought men and women together. It brought the tribes together. So we had Liverpool, Sheffield, Newcastle, Leeds, London, you know, all the groups from the neighbouring towns and cities that were descending on this club in Manchester on a Wednesday, on a Wednesday in Manchester city centre. And it brought, it, I think the marketing for it was very clever. Paul Cons did it and he coined the phrase, it's queer up north. And he also, um, what was the other phrase he had? It's queer up north and Manchester became gay Chester. I remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was down to Paul Combs. And it's easy to say that and think, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Of course, I remember that. It's cool. But again, I put it into context with this was coming off the back of the Hacienda being closed for a year because of violence and guns and drugs and all of that bad press. Um, the 80s into the 90s, we had the sus laws, which were really severe. We had a really homophobic and racist police force and police commissioner. So James Anderton was out to get anyone who wasn't white, straight, male, 
all white female in the city centre. So if you were gay, if you were black, if you were black female, you ran the risk of being pulled in, you know, because the sus laws meant that they didn't need a reason to stop and search people. And you could be pulled in for anything, literally. And you could be pulled out of your car because that's how the law developed. So Manchester was a very dour, really, you know, it, it was a difficult place. And in the middle of all of that, and also the AIDS crisis, which made anything gay, like the biggest stigma ever, you know, people didn't want to touch gay people, they might catch AIDS. You know, we doing anything gay wasn't the cool thing that it kind of is in 2024. And the reason why it's kind of cool in 2024 to do these things is because there were battles being fought in 1990, 91, 92, 93 by club owners, by activists, by, you know, the pride movement and things like that, that were really um, putting their neck out to make being gay, to integrate the gay community into the community at large and have it kind of equalized and you know there were really big serious battles being fought so putting flesh <laughs> into the hacienda hacienda hadn't had a gay night for nine years first nine years of its operation it wasn't like the mixed place to be and then putting this night in where it was saying openly you know remembering that sec chapter sorry, section 28 meant that you couldn't talk about anything gay or same sex in the media, in education or, you know, anything like that. We were all over the press. Paul is a really, really good PR. Flesh was all over the press and it was Gay Chester. It was Queer Up North and it was, you know, we were attracting tourism to Manchester saying that Manchester was a safe place to be gay. It had never been done before. We were linking the tribes, men, women, gay, straight, black, white, real melting pot of the crowd, diversity gone mad, like <laughs> Just everything from Lee Bowery to, um, you know, Princess Julia and myself. And it was eye-popping. It was brash. Pam Hogg. Like, it was fashion. It was anti-fashion. If you wanted to go there, start bollock naked with sellotape on your tits, you could, you know, come as you are. <clears throat> it was a safe place for people to just go and enjoy clubbing as we wanted it to be and you know certainly and I kind of concur with what Paul Conn said in my in the book he said you know we lit the match yeah because up until that point if you you know, 
nobody straight wanted to go to a gay club. Why? You know, catching fags, puss, queers, you name it, dyke, you, you name it. We got all the names. People had the hair set on fire on the bus for that reason. You get spat on, get you get your head kicked in, you know, it, you ran the risk. It was it was like that. And to have and to establish a club night that in a very short time had straight people in order to get into the club kissing their same sex mates on the door to prove that they were gay so they could come in. Well, I think that speaks for itself. I really do. I think that speaks for itself. It had never been cool for straight people to go to a gay club until then. And then, you know, the next thing that happened, you know, um, Manto's had already opened. That was on Canal Street. And then the next thing that happened was Paradise Factory, which was a gay club that was open every night of the week, not just the last Wednesday. So Manchester was changing. Flesh also was the first place in Manchester to get a late license. So it changed the game in so many ways. It changed the game for Manchester clubbing. Uh, <laughs> well, look, thank you so much for speaking to me today. You're welcome. You're very you've, welcome. Got, you've, got, you've got one of my favourite albums on display there, Full Hero, Two Pages. Oh, That's... I did their press. <laughs> well, that, that I did was... the press on that album. <laughs> I didn't even know that until um, until I read it in your book and, and yeah, read well, that's my like... boys and represent Ronnie's there. Yeah, golden Ronnie age for hero, golden age of talking loud and Mercury Records and PR and all of that. So yeah, I've won awards and records and various things for lots of things that nobody even knows. <laughs> they will. They will know. <laughs> Yeah, I don't mind that they don't, though. It's just, you know, when I won the top 100 DJs thing um, in 22, so it wasn't last year, it was the year before, I, my first instinct was to explain why. And then I thought, why do I have to do that? Any guy that wins an award just takes it. Yeah. And it's like, you know, cheers, thanks a lot. Any woman that wins an award has to kind of justify why they've got it. And I think that is crazy. I think it's really crazy that she, that, that should be your first instinct is to say, oh, no, 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 but I've got it because of this. It's just like, no, actually, that's mine because I deserve it. DJ Paulette? Your new book, Welcome to the Club, The Life and Lessons of a Black Woman DJ, is out now, I think. Well, it's out on the 23rd of January, but I think people are already getting their copies, so right. I've it, read it. it's kind of filtering through now. As I say, it's a, it's a, it's a, really, it's a really interesting book. Thank you. It's a really nice book and also kind of really important book as well. So thank um, you. I'm glad you found it. So say the, say the bit where you think it's really well written as well, please. Actually, the thing I was going to say is I think it is, uh, above all, it's very well written. <laughs> no, no, I enjoyed I wrote every word myself. And, and that's why I, I kind of cattle prodded you on that one, because it's the first DJ book that has been self-penned. 
every other DJ book has been ghost written by somebody. I've written every single word myself. I've created that world from scratch. And I am so proud of it because in the beginning, people said I couldn't and I always knew I could. So, bam. <laughs> Read it and weep, motherfuckers. <laughs> well, A lot of bad about language there. You'll have to cut it all out. So. Yeah, <laughs> languages is... is <laughs> right, well, it's, it's, been, it's been a pleasure. I better go and uh, make it who are making threatening noises in the background. Did you say cats or dog? Children. Oh, children. Oh, God. <laughs> Go and deal with the children. You've got to feed them, otherwise they'll um, break the door down. Or start being like dogs and raiding all the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Eating all the chocolate and then they'll have chocolate around the face and they'll be climbing the walls and the, the roof and then they won't go to sleep. Probably already happens, but, you know... Yeah, we'll go and sort them out. It's been a pleasure talking to you anyway. It's been really good fun. Thank you. You're listening to Radio Primavera Sound, proudly presented by Cupra.